and welcome to Script to Screen Podcast. I'm your host, Mercedes K. Milner. If you've tuned in before, you might notice a slight difference. I'm recording solo. Now, don't stress out, I haven't been dumped by my ride or dies, but lately schedules haven't aligned as easily as they used to, which is actually quite a bit more exciting than you might think. So I'm restructuring a bit to keep this podcast on our roster, because if you know anything about me, you know I'm a total script nerd and will find literally any excuse to read. So here's what that looks like. You and I will read and screen each month and meet back here on this podcast feed to dish about what worked in the script, what made it to the screen, and some helpful tips we gleaned along the way. Some months, I may even bring a friend on to chat with us, from Ride or Die or elsewhere. And if you, dear listener, think there is a script I absolutely must read, I invite you to tell me so. You can send in your suggestions to thewodc at gmail.com. Now, without further ado, let's jump into this month's script. This month, we're focusing on Eve. All about Eve, in fact. Written and directed by Joseph L. Minkowicz. So, if you've listened before, you might know that I always try to make clear what the written screen credits are, because sometimes it gets a little confusing. There's so many credits you can have as a writer, and it just makes it a little bit easier to understand when you are told exactly what each credit means. So, written by indicates that the writer or writers are entitled to story by credit and the screenplay by credit. The story by credit, anyone who worked on the treatment or outline of the movie gets this. But the screenplay by credit is for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. So written by just combines these two. Now, a little background on All About Eve. All About Eve is a 1950 American drama film written and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. It was based on the 1946 short story The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, although screen credit was not given. An aspiring actress struggling to find her way in the industry befriends another actress at the top of her game. This connection gives her the leg up she needs to lie, cheat, and steal her way to the top of the totem pole, leaving the wreckage of betrayal in the rear view. Now, before I go any further, I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about the wisdom of Eve and Mary Orr. Though this version of the story is considered by most to be laughably inadequate compared to Minkowicz's adaptation, I feel the need to give credit where credit is due. Mary Orr might not have been quite as prolific, but she did provide the basis for the hit film and deserves to have that acknowledged. The first appearance of her short story was in a 1946 issue of Cosmo. Many rumors have swirled around the idea of Orr's inspiration for the tale, primarily the real-life influence for Margot Channing's character. I have yet to find a consistent through-line for the actress her character is based on, but I did manage to dig up some drama on the misunderstanding between Betty Davis and Tallulah Bankhead. Apparently, after being fed rumors that Margot's character was based off of her, Bankhead found a few choice words for Betty Davis that included tearing every hair out of her mustache. However, after warming up to the idea of being the basis for such a successful character, 
She soured towards Orr once she told her that she actually wasn't the basis for Margot. She actually never spoke to Orr again after that. Now that's the type of drama someone listening to this podcast should consider trying to adapt. Just saying. Orr would eventually adapt her short story for the stage, but she would never find the success with this narrative that Mankiewicz did with All About Eve. Unfortunate, yes, but sometimes one of the hard truths a writer must face is the fact that there may come a time when someone can tell your story better than you can. But to that, I say, humble thyself. That's just one reason that this is a super collaborative industry. Learn to work together. Your audience will thank you for the masterpieces. And now we begin our journey through the pages of Joseph L. Mankiewicz's adaptation, All About Eve, beginning with the page one breakdown. The first page of any script is the most important, and that's why we break down each first page that we read so that we can see what works and why this script got past this page. Let's go ahead and read the first page. Fade in. Dining Hall, Sarah Siddons Society, Night. It is not a large room and jammed with tables, mostly for four, but some for six and eight. A long table of honor for about 30 people has been placed upon a dice. Dinner is over. Demi-tosses, cigars, and brandy. The overall effect is one of worn elegance and dogged gentility. It is June. The camera as it has been throughout the credit titles, is on a full close-up of the Sarah Siddons Award. It is a gold statuette about a foot high of Sarah Siddons as the tragic muse. Exquisitely framed in a nest of flowers, it rests on a miniature altar and the center of the table of honor. Over this, we hear the crisp, cultured, precise voice of Addison DeWitt. The Sarah Siddons Award for Distinguished Achievement is perhaps unknown to you. It has been spared the sensational and commercial publicity that attends such questionable honors as the Pulitzer Prize and those awards presented annually by that film society. The camera has eased back to include some of the table of honor and a distinguished gentleman with snow-white hair who is speaking. We do not hear what he says. The distinguished-looking gentleman is an extremely old actor. Being an actor, he will go on speaking for some time. It is not important that you hear what he says. The writer's voice is distinct from the start, and it is clear that they have a sharp vision of the way the film will look. As we know, Mankiewicz also directed this film, so he had the luxury of mentioning the camera in his action paragraphs. Most of us, especially those of us breaking in, will not have that luxury. Note, do not talk about the camera. You don't get to make those calls unless this is a self-produced project. If you are writing a fellowship, competition, writing challenge, or any other form of submittable script, don't do it. Just don't. One thing I find unique about this writer's style is the holistic point of view we get as we read. The tone throughout is very consistent from action to dialogue. On page one, the reader already gets the sense that this is a high society type of read. There will be glitz, glamour, and spicy betrayal and I'm here for it. We're introduced to a snarky narrator very early on that already feels like the jaded confidant ready to link arm in arm with you and show you what's behind the curtain. 
Here's a quick note about narrators. Use extreme caution. Many a writer, including me, have made the mistake of leaning too heavily on a narrator to tell a visual story. Here's something you should consider before you write that line of narration dialogue. Is this character about to tell the reader slash viewer something that can be easily deduced just by watching it happen without some weird disembodied voice to explain it? Give your audience more credit. They're smarter than you think. One of the most underrated superpowers of being human is the ability to pick up on nuance. Use that to your advantage. And when in doubt, remember, show, don't tell. If your audience wants a radio play, they'll go find one. And now, on to Act 1, which I titled, Listen and Learn, Junior. On page 3, we finally get the reveal of our mystery narrator, and I have to say, I fangirled pretty hard. How brilliant is it to use an arts critic as a narrator for this type of story? Already, we know we're going to get that sarcastic, nose-turned-up tone that makes a story like this the dark comedy it needs to be. And... It's completely unexpected, yet makes the most sense out of any other option. This is a great example of the writer knowing the world of their narrative to the core. Three pages in, and already I believe this character. And, as an audience, we aren't being asked to understand the world as well as the writer. In fact, we've already been called out about our lack of knowledge by Addison. We just have to understand that, in this world, the actor rules all. However... In scene 40 on page 11, we get an unexpected switch of narrator. Karen, Lloyd Richards' wife, the playwright, takes the helm here, which feels a bit bizarre considering the way she has been described thus far, relatively aloof. But then you get that same tone when she begins her narration, leading us presumably to where this all began. I want to take a quick moment to talk about character introduction particularly where it pertains to Bertie's character. This is something that is important to every script, introducing your character in a way that is going to make casting easy and acting easy, but also give you the character that you really, really want in the first place. Bertie's character is introduced in one of the most interesting ways I've ever seen to date, and I wanted to talk about it. So right away, I was completely lost on what kind of character this was supposed to be. Here's her description. Between them, by the dressing table, is Bertie, Margot's maid. Her age is unimportant. She was conceived during a split week in Walla Walla and born in a carnival riot. She is fiercely loyal to Margot. I have no idea what it means to be conceived during a split week in Walla Walla and born in a carnival riot. After some time contemplating it, it dawned on me that these have to be theater terms. So I looked it up. Here's the definition of a split week from The Road 101. A split week engagement. A split week is usually four to five performances over a three-day period. The front end of a split week would most often be Tuesday to Thursday, and the back end of a split week would typically be Friday to Sunday. I couldn't quite get to the bottom of the carnival riot notice, but I don't think you have to. As you get to know her and get acquainted with her punchy dialogue, you catch a glimpse of a character with depth that loves the theater as much as anyone else in the room, and she has a wealth of knowledge equally extensive, even if she's always speaking about it in layman's terms. Yet another great example that this script was written by a major theater buff. 
A quick note about Eve's monologue, scene 46, page 25, just in case you don't have the script right out in front of you. This is the scene where Eve tells everyone about her troubled past, now seeing Margot in remembrance in San Francisco changed her life. Normally, writers are discouraged from using this much dialogue in one big chunk. There's a lack of balance on the page when you do this that is kind of displeasing to the eye. However, I think it's important to note the trick Minkowicz incorporated here to give the character pause while speaking and breaking up the lines to make it a bit more readable and less scary. Add a bit of movement or action throughout. In film school, this might be where a professor might tell you to have your character take a drink of water or clear their throat. But those are boring and often ill-fitting options. Take note of the finesse infused here. Steal it. Use it in your own work. And now on to a very interesting point. Bill's rant about the theater, scene 48, page 33. This was an incredibly striking line of dialogue that I wanted to note because it feels infused with either the writer's own beliefs about art or a particular thought process that has struck them before. This is a really tasteful way to put a hint of yourself into your writing without screaming in the reader's face, this is a so-and-so production, hashtag never forget. Listen, Junior, and learn. Want to know what the theater is? A flea circus, also opera, also rodeos, carnivals, ballets, Indian tribal dances, Punch and Judy, a one-man band, all theater. Wherever there's magic and make-believe and an audience, there's theater. Donald Duck, Ibsen and the Lone Ranger, Sarah Bernhardt, Poodles Hanford, Lunt and Fontaine, Betty Grable, Rex the Wild Horse, and Eleanor Dews. You don't understand them all. You don't like them all. Why should you? The theater is for everybody. You included, but not exclusively. So don't approve or disapprove. It may not be your theater, but it's theater for somebody, somewhere. And now on to Act 2, which I titled, A Body with a Voice. I want to take you over to scene 55, page 40, a game of subtext for the screen. This is the scene where Eve has made herself an established, indispensable asset to Margot, and for the time being, Margot is none the wiser to her true intentions or motivations. This is a beautifully written scene that really tells all despite being silent. This is a show-don't-tell example to the max. What are we really seeing here? Already, we can see the shifting dynamic from character to character. You get the sense that Bertie smells conflict all over Eve. Remember how she was adamantly described as fiercely loyal to Margot? That also means being able to snip out trouble on her behalf, even if she refuses to see it. Eve is getting comfortable and cozying up to the idea that she's becoming Margot's new right-hand girl. You also get the sense that she's playing firm with Bertie, trying to get her to remember her place as the maid. Margot is blissful and oblivious. She's being taken care of, and she has a fondness for Eve that makes her trust her a little too easily. All of that from one relatively silent scene, save for the narration from Margot. I would like to fast forward a little bit to the scene sequence 56 through 60, starting on page 41. This is an interesting scene because it kind of shifts the tone a little bit. So far, this has been snarky, playful, a little bit mysterious, but this is the turning point for me where I was like, is this about to become a thriller? Let's take a look. 
Interior Theater Backstage Quran Theater From the wings, the audience is never visible. Eve in the foreground, her back to the camera. Margot and company taking a curtain call. Tumultuous applause, the curtain falls. The cast, except for Margot, and two male leads walks off. The curtain rises again. Close, Eve. Watching and listening to the storm of applause, her eyes shine, she clasps and unclasps her hands. The stage. Eve again in the foreground, but closer. Again the curtain falls. This time the two men go off. Curtain rises on Margot alone. If anything, the applause builds. Close up, Eve. That same hypnotic look. There are tears in her eyes. The curtain falls off scene, then rises again. Close, Margot. The curtain falls again between her and the camera. There's something so haunting about this scene that I honestly believe that this script in the hands of another director might be filmed so differently. There's something so obsessive and captivating. The energy of it just lifts off the page. To me, that really speaks to the versatility of the narrative. So, cool. And now, moving forward to scene 69, pages 49 through 53. Raising the stakes. What the hell is Eve's true motivation? This is the scene where Margot confronts Bertie about her distaste for Eve following the phone call to Bill for his birthday. Up to this point, Margot has viewed Eve as a naive fangirl who also happens to be very thoughtful as an assistant. But that phone call with Bill has given her something to think about. This new developing perception of her is raising the stakes and forcing her to ask, what's her motivation? Let's face it. No one worships someone that much without wanting to be them. Beautifully done. Now we'll see the fallout of this new realization in A Party to Go Down in History, Bill's Welcome Home Birthday Bash. Scenes 72 through 73, pages 53 through 66. This party is a major turning point for Eve because she catches a glimpse at Margot's weakness. She can't separate her onstage persona from her offstage one, and that sours people to her at times. Why is this forever long scene working so well? Emphasis on forever long? We're catching a glimpse of a few things here. The philosophy of the theater, Eve's secret aspirations, the willingness of the inner circle to accept Eve as one of their own, that is, someone that is of the theater, and the downturn of a renowned actress. Marco at this point is bordering on peaking, and we can tell because of her career trophies collecting proverbial dust behind Eve, the newcomer. But just when you thought that scene was over and done with, we get a reverse perspective scene. Scene 75 to 80, pages 67 to 87. You may think that one of the main reasons for this type of scene is to fill in the blanks of the scene we've already watched, but... There is quite a bit more than meets the eye. Yes, we're gaining more context, but we're also getting a closer look at motivation. And Margot's is so human. The writing is mwah, chef's kiss. What have we learned? On the surface, Margot suspects that Eve is stepping in between her and Bill. Step off my man. Just beneath, Margot is feeling a bit suffocated by Eve lately, and what was once cute is now extremely annoying. And at the core, 
Margot is slowly starting to see the writing on the wall. She is on her way out of the lead roles. How much longer can she play 20-somethings? And do they honestly think she can't see the way they all marvel at stupid Eve Harrington come to take her crown? And honestly, how annoying is it that Eve thinks that unsuspecting, innocent, deer-caught-in-headlights stare is really going to throw Margot off the trail? See what I mean? In the film, these two scenes would actually be combined, and I would argue for the better because we ultimately get the best perspectives from both scenes. I think it's important to note that I am still a big fan of reverse perspective scenes. But when approaching them in your own work, really ask yourself if these sequences really need to be separated or if they will work combined. Because I think on the screen, it saved us from a lot of unnecessary time spent on one single party. Moving on to Margot being her own worst enemy. Scene 83, pages 92 to 104. This is the scene where Margot has a complete meltdown after being two hours late to the reading with Miss Caswell and finding out from DeWitt that Eve's reading produced fire and music. This scene blows up on the page, and as a reader, I'm anxious to watch it unfold on the screen. It's so electric, and you'll be happy to know that it does blow up on the screen in a big way, and it's arguably one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie. This is another great example of writing that comes from a place of immense background knowledge, but that doesn't force the reader to know the minute details of the world. The layman may not be familiar with the work of Beaumont or Fletcher, but everyone understands the feeling of a presumed hostile takeover. In this instance, Margot's career is the big thing at stake. I would also like to take a moment to mention that this is a prime example of creating the perfect scenario for character action and reaction. Margot, diva that she is, was always fated to have this blow up. She's been a ticking time bomb for some time, most notably since her party, or shall we say Bill's party. And she was never going to be able to have a reasonable reaction to Eve reading on her behalf because by this point, Eve is swiftly becoming the bane of her existence. This reaction is about as true to form as it can get, and in behaving like a madwoman, she also creates opportunity for the story to move forward in a way that involves every principal character. Moving forward to Eve's incomplete forward pass, scene 89, pages 116 to 122. This is the scene where Eve fails at coming on to Bill while he compliments her understudy performance. Here's where we catch a glimpse at Eve's motivation, that thing we've been waiting for all this time. Not the being a starry-eyed, upcoming actress, the real motivation, and the slight unraveling of the true Eve. So there's quite a bit to unpack here. Let's start with Eve's passive bill. The tone she takes here is something that sounds so far from the shy, scared Eve we've known up to this point. This is the first time we've seen her be truly assertive, and she straight up comes off thirsty as hell. The fact that it's Margot's man makes her extra brazen. This is not the Eve we've known, but it's definitely the Eve we've always suspected was there. Her taking the scissors to Margot's wig takes me back to the scene where she studied Margot unblinkingly. There's consistency here, nuance, and it makes her seem so unhinged. It also leans into just about the only thing we've all been able to deduce thus far. She doesn't idolize Margot. She wants to be Margot. She's quite possibly found herself an ally in Addison as well. Or a backstabber. 
I'd lean more towards Backstabber after reading that review following her performance. But this review does a number of things. For one thing, it exposes Eve. Even if it means he soiled her to Margot's group, in the classic fashion of his character, Addison has gotten to the grimy core of his subject's thoughts and refuses to let them hide behind niceties. He's kind of a perfect foil for the skittish Eve, or the seemingly skittish Eve. It also creates a clear, understandable divide between characters. Prior to this, Margot can put into proper words the reason behind her contempt for Eve. Now she's got a perfect explanation. It also signals war. It's officially on between Eve and Margot, even if Eve didn't intend it. I want to scooch forward a few scenes and talk about what I think is scene structure at its B-E-S-T, the bathroom blackmail. Scene 98, pages 138 through 143. A note on scene structure. A professor in film school once told me that each scene of your screenplay must be a miniature movie in itself. It has to have a beginning, middle, and end, and a rise in tension, and some form of resolution. In my January book of the month, Blake Snyder Saved the Cat, the example of tension between characters in a scene is described as two people enter a room or stage from opposite ends, and each person's goal is to get from one side to the other, but there's a conflict because there's some dumb asshole in their way. This bathroom blackmail scene is a great and easy-to-dissect example of scene structure at its best. Act 1. A shunned Eve begs for forgiveness. She's officially out of the cool kids club and is beginning to feel like a lone wolf. She wants in again. Act 2. Karen softens up, and Eve sees her opportunity to ask for Cora, and takes it, but it swiftly backfires. But just when she thinks all is lost and she's completely stuck her foot in it again... She pulls out her smoking gun. She knows how Margot missed the show in the first place and allowed her to call all of the reviewers in town to see her understudy performance. Act 3. Karen is defeated. Eve is no longer groveling. And the resolution? She'll play Cora if Karen knows what's good for her. A good rule of thumb when it comes to creating character tension and driving their arcs in a scene is to make sure that the luck of each character is flipped by the end. There always has to be a loser, just as much as there has to be a winner. So who won this scene, you ask? Eve. She came in low and left on top. Karen, on the other hand, came in with all the cards and lost everything in the end. The true moral of it all? Eve is, and likely has always been, a goddamn monster. So Eve is flying high, she's got the part of Cora, and everything seems to be going well, right? Until we get to the scene, sequence, 117 through 118. Killer to killer, champion to champion. This is the sequence where Addison completely exposes Eve after she tries to tell him that Lloyd is leaving Karen for her, and it's going to be her rocket to the moon. Now, I do want to take a moment to take a step back and talk about something that didn't quite make it to the screen, but I think it's for the better. When she references the night that Lloyd came to her in the middle of the night and woke her up and they talked all night until the sun came up, there is a bit of tension and buildup between Karen and Lloyd when he gets up and he's getting ready to go and meet Margot. On the page, we get a scene where Karen confronts Lloyd about leaving in the middle of the night to go see another woman. She's starting to see the writing on the wall. And she knows that Eve is probably after her man. And she also probably knows why. He is one of the most 
successful up-and-coming writers of the day, and she wants to be a leading lady for years and years and years and years to come. There's a bit of a fight on the page, but when we transition to the screen, we see that that part of it is taken out, and I think one of the big reasons for that is because you really don't need Karen to tell him, I don't want you to go, because you can see it written all over the actress's face, and you can pick up on it in the subtext of the scene. So really think about that when you're approaching these types of scenes in your own scripts. What's something on the page that you think can really be picked up in nuance off the page? Now following this, the script has officially been flipped on Eve at this point, and the fallout was absolutely delicious. It's been building all this time. We haven't really been able to see the true Eve until exactly this moment. And because she still thinks that Addison is an ally, she feels comfortable showing her true fangs. But who would win this scene? Addison, of course. He owns Eve. She just fed him exactly what he needed to seal the deal on that. And Eve most certainly got her just desserts. And now, on to Act 3, which I titled, I'd Like to Thank the Haters. I think this act is a perfect example of what my dear film school teacher Marie Drennan would call, What Happens After Everything Happens. We begin where we started and get to hear Eve's acceptance speech, and that's all fine and well. The writer could have decided to end the script right then and there and leave Eve triumphant and basking in the praise. Who cares if she's technically owned by Addison? She's got exactly what she wanted all along. She's in the limelight. But what kind of message would that leave the audience with? The trickster takes the gold? Or what happens after everything happens goes beyond the award show and introduces us to, quote-unquote, maybe Phoebe? At least that's what she calls herself. The spitting image of fresh-faced Margot Channing-obsessed Eve Harrington. And the message? What goes around most certainly will come around again. She takes the award into the bedroom, sets it on a trunk. As she starts out, she sees Eve's fabulous wrap on the bed. She listens. Then, quietly, she puts on the wrap and picks up the award. Slowly, she walks to a large three-mirrored cheval. With grace and infinite dignity, she holds the award to her and bows again and again, as if to the applause of a multitude. Fade out. The end. Script to Screen is an original production of the Rider Die Chicks and is hosted by me, Mercedes K. Milner. If you'd like to know what I'll be reading and screening each month, you can visit our website, thewodc.com, to see my curated list of screenplays for the year. You can also check out the Reading on Writing Book Club if you'd like to read the Screenwriting Book of the Month with me as well. For the month of February, join me in reading Lena Waithe's Queen and Slim and Michael Boyce-Galetzi's Film Blackness, American Cinema, and the Idea of Black Film. Until then, thank you so much for listening and write for your life.